Welcome to the Shields Outdoors podcast, your source for information on hunting, fishing, and all of your outdoor passions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Shields Outdoors podcast. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit of late season hunting. Specifically, we're going to be talking mule deer hunting. We were just out on a hunting trip, me and my cousin and hunting buddy, Ryan Fisher, and I have him with me on this today. We're going to talk about kind of our strategy going into it, what happened during the hunt, and then just kind of some reactions and kind of takeaways from this trip. So, Ryan, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for joining us. Are your, are your legs feeling good again after all those miles we put on? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm almost back to a hundred percent. Uh, maybe should have, should have done, uh, my late season cardio, maybe, uh, not quite, uh, what it used to be in the early season, maybe too much sitting in a, in a deer stand for a whitetail. It just got out of shape, but, uh, we definitely put some miles on and covered some country. So it was, uh, it was a fun trip. Good to stretch the legs and, and, uh, and cover some ground. Yeah, I'm exactly in that same boat. You know, both of us kind of grew up whitetail hunting and kind of got into this mule deer game the past, you know, five, seven years or so. So we're still in kind of like that learning experience, but it's good to, you know, take the things you've learned from whitetail hunting and be able to translate it and try something new, something different. And, you know, man, it's just a ton of fun out there. Like I, I look forward to that so much. It's probably my favorite hunting trip out of the year. You know, you there's something about whitetail hunting that, you know, it's just like nostalgic and all the time and preparation and running trail cameras and whatnot. But like to just be able to go out West and like kind of fly by the seat of your pants and learn as you go. It's, it's just awesome. So much fun. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and to be honest, I mean, you look at if you're a North Dakota resident, which probably a lot of the people are, listening to this podcast or, or even South Dakota too. Um, you really have a, a, a really great opportunity to get a mule deer tag, you know, with a bow tag in North Dakota, it's basically an a deer tag. Um, there's not a lot of States you can do that. In fact, there's most of the States in the U S if you look at trying to get a mule deer tag, it takes quite a few years of applying. Uh, you know, it just, it takes time in order to get that tag as a non-resident. So I guess it's, your North Dakota person listening to this podcast, um, you know, we can speak from experience. It's a ton of fun. Uh, uh, and you have that tag over the counter. It's a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can definitely consider ourselves lucky in North Dakota. And, you know, that, that kind of brings up a great point about preparation. It's like, you know, we're, we're in December now. And then, like, you got to start thinking about where you're going to go hunting and applying for tags and that. So, like, get that on the radar. If you want to, if you, like, enjoy this and want to try it yourself, like start looking at areas where you need to like put in for points, get tags where you'll likely get drawn. So just kind of, kind of dot your I's and cross your T's with that and and get yourself ready for this next season. Yeah, absolutely. I think the first time we went out is, is kind of when we were lining up to likely get rifle tags. Um, and more than anything, we just wanted to go see the country, figure out where we would want to hunt knew that we were going to draw at some point and uh i don't know just kind of fell in love with the with the bow hunting part of it granted i love to get a rifle tag out there that's awesome that's a lot of fun uh, i'll take those as, uh any any way i can get them uh but 
I mean, the bow hunting part out there is just, just a blast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely a challenge. And, you know, it, there, there were times we'll get into this that I, I wish I had a rifle in my hands instead of, instead of that bow. But yeah, let's, uh, let's get into the sexual hunt. Talk about, uh, you know, we'll start at the preparation side of things. So what, uh, what were you doing to kind of prepare yourself for this hunt just from like the aspect of where we're going to hunt? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've been out there a few times, so I probably had a little bit of a leg up compared to somebody, you know, starting out fresh for the first time. But looked really looking at um, Hononix or whatever app you're using uh, for, for hunting to keep track of locations or, or, or places that you've hunted. Uh, and really dove into, you know, we talked a bit talking about, okay, where do we want to start or what area do we really want to look for um, when it comes to uh you know, specifically late season, what do we think these deer are going to be doing? It's likely winding down post rut. We may find some running activity. We may not. They might be bachelor group back up. And obviously we knew one thing, it was going to be cold. Uh, these deer were probably going to be looking for good feed and, you know, basically thermal cover or someplace to get out of the wind and get out of the harsh conditions. So that's kind of how we started diving into some of the locations that we picked to hunt you know, deeper, probably steeper, um, Canyon type country, uh, thick bottoms as far as, um, cover. And obviously there's gotta be water in the area and, and good feed. So that was kind of the three, four things that stuck out to me of like a late season mule deer hunt. Um, that's, that's where we're going to start and we're just going to dive in and see what we find. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat with that too. It's like, you know, th- thinking about late season hunting, you know, we've been out there and, September, we've been out there in October rifle hunting in November, but you know, neither of us have actually hunted out there in December. So it's a little bit different of a dynamic there, you know, like they've been pressured for four months and, and, you know, like they're going to, you know, they're going to likely need to feed because, you know, they've been rutting for a month and it's going to get winter. So it's like, okay, they're going to have, they're going to have food sources in the back of their mind. And, you know, it's getting cold, it's windy out there. They're probably going to want to be, you know, down in that thick cover too, or at least be close to it, be in the area. So it's like, okay, let's find those spots that are, that have great cover that, you know, they can hide, they can feel safe, but they're still in close proximity of like where they're going to feed. And, you know, that kind of brings like the conditions into it too. Like this area was pretty, you know, like it was kind of drought conditions out there. So there wasn't really a lot of natural brows or maybe not as much as like there are in years past. So it's just definitely some things to key on when you're out there. So what, uh, what sort of things did you have with in your pack and what, what, what did, was your clothing set up out there? Um, yeah, so clothing, I would say for anybody, uh, diving into mule deer hunting for the first time, maybe you just whitetail hunted in the past or, or, or whatever you, maybe a little bit more thought goes into, okay, what's going in my pack? What type of pack am I going to have? Um, and, and how are you going to hunt? So if you're going to leave the pickup before day, before daylight and you're going to, you've got your food, you've got your water, you've got your clothing and you got to carry it all on your back. Uh, you want to be comfortable. I mean, nobody likes to get cold and wet, right? So, um, that doesn't make the experience very much fun because I've been there before. And I would say looking back at some of our hunts, the, some of the, not to deter anyone, but this is reality. Some of the coldest I've ever been is mule deer hunting with you in October. 
like any time of the year. I can remember one specific hunt where I don't think either of us had enough gear on our back to stay out where we needed to stay or glass on a ridge stop in the wind and cold. So thinking about type of clothing you have, obviously it's Western North Dakota, uh, um, conditions can change very quickly. Um, so you want something that's one, you got to be able to cut the wind and you need some insulation pieces to try trap that heat against your body. And, and most of all, I don't, it doesn't rain a lot, but if it does rain, you're going to want to stay dry. So thinking about having those sets of clothes, try to find some lightweight stuff as everything adds up when it goes into your pack, especially like I carry a spotter and a tripod on me. And all of a sudden you've got, you know, a few different layers worth of clothing. You've got food and water for the day. So your pack when you're leaving the truck in the morning can, you know, it's not going to be exactly light. So thinking about everything you're bringing along with you, um, is, uh, is definitely going to pay off in the end. Mm-hmm, for sure. And, and I vividly remember that hunt you're talking about in October. Cause sure. like we, we went out and we found this bluff area that looked real good. It was like two miles, at least two miles away from like any road. And, you know, we, we get out there and it's like 40, 50 mile an hour winds. And, you know, we ended up going around this ravine and bumping this group of bucks. Like two of them were really nice too. It's like definite shooters. And we're like, okay, well, let's get to the next, this ridge top. It didn't look like they bumped real hard. So it's like, all right, let's get, let's get, let's get some eyes on these deer. And we, we could see a ton of ground, but it's like the wind was just whipping in our face. And it's like you want to sit there cause you know, these bucks are somewhere like they're going to pop out sooner or later. But like, it was, it was kind of a game where we couldn't even wait long enough to, to, for them to come out. Cause it got so dang cold and we just weren't ready. It's like, it's October, you know, we don't expect it to be this cold, but like, I can't sit for two hours at this glassing point and have 50 mile an hour winds ripping in my face. Like let's go out and move. And then we ended up moving and actually finding those deer. So it's kind of crazy. Yeah, I had every article of clothing in my pack on me, and uh, uh, yeah, there was no way we were going to stay on that glassing knob uh, <laughs> with that wind in our face. And I don't know what the wind chill was, but it was it was. Uh, you think of an October mule deer hunt, boy, you know it's going to be fifty degrees or it's going to be forty five degrees. That sounds beautiful. Well, put a thirty or forty mile an hour wind in your face on that, and all of a sudden the wind chill factor changes things a bit. And uh, yeah, we weren't ready for that. Yeah, hundred percent. And I can say without a shadow of a doubt that I was more comfortable on this December trip than I was in that October one. And that was just because of preparation and layering, you know, like making sure you have the proper layers out there is just crucial. Like start yourself with a base layer. And then what I did was I had a, uh, I had a hooded sweatshirt and then I had a vest and then I had my top layer over it and then just made sure to have enough room in my pack where like, as, as it's getting throughout the day, you're moving a long distance, then you can, you know, you can shed a couple of those layers. Like I'd end up going with just the base layer in my outer and shedding that vest and sweatshirt and putting that in my pack, having enough room. And then you just stay comfortable. Cause then you're not like, you're not getting sweated up. Cause the, the worst thing out there is getting all sweaty. Like number one, the deer are going to smell you easier, but number two, like you start sweating and then you stop and then you get cold real fast that way. Yeah, there was a few things that sticks out to me. Uh, well, one thing to add on to that, that's a good point. Um, for anybody who's getting into this, um, just stay away from cotton against your skin. 
I've learned that the hard way too. Um, throw on a t-shirt in the morning or whatever, and then you're next to skin layer or whatever it is. Um, yeah, you get sweaty with cotton. Cotton doesn't dry very fast. So, uh, stick to something else. Um, you know, merino wool would be another good option or something like that. Uh, talk to somebody at Shields or the store or whatever. I'm sure, uh, some of the experts there will, will point you in the right direction of, of stuff to like against skin. To your point of getting sweated up. If you do get sweated up, you've got to have something that's, that can breathe because otherwise you are going to get cold when you have to stop. Uh, other thing that you wore was, I mean, we had Saturday of our hunt. It was really windy and it was cold. Um, you had a really nice neck gaiter. Like that would be something that I would have in my pack. I had one, but mine wasn't super heavy. Um, and I wish I had a little bit of a heavier one just to be able to block the wind on your face mm-hmm. because most of the time you're glassing into a spotting scope or binoculars. You probably have the wind in your face on the glassing knob or on a ridge and being able to block the wind in your face. Like, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you definitely feel it when you've got the wind blowing in your face all day. Yep, absolutely. That honestly, that Sika neck gaiter is my number one favorite piece of clothing. It's just like, it's literally a lifesaver because, you know, like that, that neck gaiter, you have so much, you have so much heat like escaping out of your out of your core area and that just kind of like traps it in and i'd be able to like early in the morning or when it was cold when it was real windy i'd wear like a, a stocking cap and i'd be able to you know put that neck gaiter right around the edge of it and like none of that heat's escaping then but then we're walking a whole bunch then i could throw on a ball cap and just do that neck gaiter and then i could pull it up just enough so it like covers my ears and that that's seriously just a money piece of gear and it's not expensive at all. You know, like a lot of people say Sitka, oh, it's so expensive, but like that neck gator is worth like every penny. <laughs> yeah. Other thing that I would add that other people maybe don't think of, um, whatever kind of gloves you want to wear. I like choppers myself, like a big set of choppers that I can have a thinner pair of gloves on underneath, uh, I easy on and off. Uh, put them in your pack. Um, just when you're running a spotter or binoculars, um, those things aren't warm <laughs> when they're sitting on a tripod in the wind, they're, they're cold. So every time you touch them, uh, your hands get cold too. So, um, uh, that'd be another little tidbit of information, a piece that uh, I'd have in my pack on a, on a cold weather hunt. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah. That chopper with a thin pair of gloves is a, is a pretty good setup. Cause like, you're going to stay warm when you're glass and you're moving. And then when you're actually in the moment of truth, you got to, you know, you got to draw your bow back and whatnot. You can just take the chopper off and then you still have that dexterity and, but you still have a layer kind of, kind of keeping you warm there with those smaller gloves. It's a, it's a solid setup. So let's, uh, let's get into actually like the hunting and the conditions and stuff like that. So you like kind of going back to it, it was, 20s, low 30s, pretty windy. These deer have been hunted since September, so they're on pins and needles. Uh, it was it was definitely a challenge out there for sure. So you had to, you know, you kind of had to take it slow, but then you had to like be able to adapt and then make a move quickly. Like we had a lot of times we'd find deer in the bottoms, especially when it's windy and, you know, just trying to get out of that wind and stuff. And then, you know, other times when we found deer up, they'd be moving and they'd be moving pretty fast. So you want to just kind of touch on your thoughts on, on like the deer movement out there when we're actually in the action. 
Yeah. I mean, to, to your point, they were, they were deeper in the bottoms than, than past trips. I mean, a lot of times, uh, in the earlier season, you'll find deer up high, uh, maybe not necessarily in the bottom of the bottom of Ridge. Um, that made it definitely more challenging glassing, not something that I maybe really thought of when we were on our way out. That was going to be a huge challenge. I figured, well, it's going to be cold. They're going to be visible. There is some snow kind of in and out uh, of the ridges or, you know, kind of right on the bottoms. There was still some snow left. It hadn't melted. Um, and I thought, well, yeah, they're going to be easy to spot. It's, you know, uh, they're going to be up and they're going to be feeding. I wouldn't necessarily say that that's exactly what we found. We found that they were hanging out in the bottom of the bottoms, uh, feeding whatever they were feeding on, browsing on natural browse. Um, and they weren't moving as much as I thought they would have been. Um, and, uh, and that definitely made it more challenging as depending upon the country you have, if you have really high vantage points where you can see the very bottom of the bottoms of the drainages, you're still fine. But in the country we were hunting, that was more breaks. Um, it required us to kind of move more, uh, and go and actually glass into the bottoms, uh, which just anytime you have to move more or go find the deer, uh, at a closer range. Well, obviously that makes it, uh, more challenging and also, you know, wind and, and everything that goes along with that, you know, everybody who's been out West knows how swirling winds or thermals work. <clears throat> so yeah, these deer were kind of on pins and needles from obviously being pressured for a while, like you mentioned. So it, uh, it definitely made things a little bit more challenging, uh, on that front. Yeah. There's, there's one stock in specific that really comes to mind for me. It was like, okay, the, the end of day one, we got ourselves, we, we located a couple of really nice bucks. We actually like, we were going down into this draw and there was a group of does on the bottom. They ended up bumping out. Like you went down into the draw to kind of like get a closer look at things. And we were actually going to a different area anyways, and just kind of ran into these deer first. Cause we didn't expect them to be there. But then like, I'm sitting at the top of this, top of this ravine. And then I, I spot a buck like a half a mile away. And then he's with another group and they're, they're, you know, like kind of working their way. And like when the deer were up, they were moving and they were difficult to like get to. So like we spent the rest of that day trying to catch up with those bucks and finally get to the point where, you know, we just, we could not get in front of them no matter how, how many moves we tried to do, how fast we tried to get in front. It was just like at that point we had to just cut our losses, but the stock, you know, like I initially wanted to talk about was the next morning. We're trying to locate these bucks again and we get to this nice glassing point, like in, in the general area where we thought these bucks were, it's like, okay, we're, we got a high vantage point. Let's try and locate these guys. And then I'm glassing and I can just, I can see some deer in the bottom and I see this one buck kind of jump a fence and get down into this really low bottom area. And I see a couple does there. It's like, okay, like day two, I'm, this is a buck I'm ready to shoot. I'm, I'm basically meat hunting at this point And this one's got some, you know, like got some back forks and uh, all right, I'm going to shoot this buck if I get a chance. And it's like, we make a game plan and we loop around, we get the wind perfectly in our favor, find that, find that fence as a vantage as a, as a reference point. And then it's like, okay, these deer should be here. And we're like halfway down the bottom. And then we see, we see deer moving through the woodworks. It's like, okay, this is where we're at. So like, okay, let's, let's come up with a game plan here of how to close the distance from 150 to 50 so we can get ourselves a shot opportunity 
and we're watching these deer down there. The, the nice buck pops out. It's like, okay, there's a couple of clearings. We're in some brush. We've got, a, we've got sort of a crosswind, so it's not perfect, but it's still pretty good. So we've got the whole day. Let's just, you know, like I'm going to slowly butt crawl down to this point where like I'm right next to this clearing. And if the deer feed through, then, you know, I'm in the chips. I got a shot opportunity here. And like I painfully slowly made my way to that spot and then all of a sudden I see 16 deer butts running out like, yeah, we got you. You know, it's like you think there's probably eight or so of them down there. And then there's double that amount. And some of them are bedded higher and it. And that wind swirls a little bit in the bottom. So it just kind of just kind of got us on that one. So it's just it's a good it's a good thing to just have in the back of your mind and absorb like what exactly happened there it's like okay there's there's a lot more deer than we thought down there and you need to be cognizant of swirling wind and you got to be able to make a move when you need to it's just there's so many factors that kind of run through your head in that situation you have to be ready for all of them which just makes it makes it really difficult challenging but super fun at the same time with this december bow hunting stuff yeah, I would say that that's what we found more than not is, is we, when we located a group of deer and we thought, okay, there's a buck with does, you know, he was still acting a little ruddy. And we ran into that scenario a few times where we found deer that, uh, bucks, mature bucks that were still with does, um, still, still interested in the breeding phase. And, uh, um, when we actually got to them, uh, if you could get within hundred yards, you, there were more, always more deer there than we thought. And it was always necessarily the deer you located. It was the deer that you didn't know was there that was going to get you most times than not. Yeah. You know, I experienced that, 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 that night after the hunt you just talked about in the morning, that evening we split up and, um, got on a group, uh, thought I was getting within a hundred yards. They were down in a little cut or a little drainage. And I was just making my way. I still had probably 20 minutes of shooting light left. I was like, you know, thinking in the back of my mind, be careful about this. You're like, this actually might work. Like, you know, <laughs> don't get your hopes up, hopes up when you're breaking the hundred yard mark. <laughs> and, uh, and I had no idea, but there was a doe across the drainage, probably watching me the whole time. <laughs> and so I looked up and I was like, oh no, this is, this is going to go badly quickly. And, obviously she blew out and uh and took the whole group with her uh below they had no idea i was there obviously but so sometimes it's the deer you don't know there that that's gonna that's gonna get get you and alarm the whole group so that was definitely a challenge uh in this late bow hunting for sure yeah 100 that's that's got to be one of my main takeaways is like when you're out you're locating deer like if you find a nice buck or something you want to target something you want to shoot but they're in a giant group like that those are nearly impossible deer to get into um you know you're you're almost better to just you know keep those in the back of your mind and to, to try and locate something that, you know, perfect situation, we're, we're in the late part of the rut there. There's still some bucks that are hanging with some does, you know, like find yourself a buck that has one doe and they're like pushed off. And that buck, you know, it's, it's not so much fooling the buck. It's fooling the doe or the group of does around you because that buck's got one thing on his mind and that's that doe. But, you know, like the, the doe is the one that's on high alert. She's like, I got this buck chasing me. I've had people shooting at me for months. It's like, 
those are the ones that you really need to fool. For sure. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, we, we talk about preparation and, and the gear we have. So what's one thing that you wish you did have on this hunt? Uh, decoy, for sure, a decoy. Um, you know, there's actually, since we got back, has been online looking at mule deer decoys and you know, all different options and things like that. And something that's packable and something that, you know, is realistic that that's actually going to be able to function. And, uh, um, I can think of, you know, one or two scenarios that we got in where you got two people, one person can hold the decoy, the other person can be ready with the bow. And if you found that late, you know, that, that buck with that doe or, or a mature buck with a group of does, and you can just slip inside his comfort zone, which, you know, you can get within 150 or maybe you can get within 100. Uh, and maybe you can't get any closer than that. To your point, you just made of like some of those groups are in unstackable positions. You just you're not going to get any closer. Uh, the terrain or just the situation is not going to allow you to get within, you know, effective bow range, whatever that may be. Everybody's different. Um Maybe a decoy, just the presence of another buck. And if he's got a hot doe in that group, he's, he's maybe not going to tolerate you at a hundred yards. I, I don't know. I've, I've never decoyed in a mule deer before, but that was one thing looking back that I wish, I wish we would have tried because it may have changed. I mean, maybe he would have come right inside 50 yards and, and, uh, wanted to run this intruder off because he didn't want him near his doe group. Um, it's definitely something, you know, next year I'm going to, I'm going to play with more. Yep. I'm, I'm with you a hundred percent on that. And what frustrates me the most is I actually have one of those decoys and it's one of those ones that just like folds down and gets really super packable. Like I can put it in my pack and it takes up literally no space, but you know, in, in my preparation process, I just, I didn't have that handy. I forgot about it. And then we get there and we start talking about this decoy thing. And it's like, yeah, I have one of those. I have the perfect thing. You know, like it's got a gap where, where I can fit my bow sight and my arrow through it and I can just go and, you know, like it attaches to my limbs. That would have been the perfect thing because, you know, like you were saying, we, we didn't have, it it wasn't easy granted finding these deer, but then when we did and we decided we want to go after one, like we didn't have a lot of trouble getting to like, 150 or a hundred yards, but it was like going from 100 to 50. That was like the most difficult part of it. And then at that point, like you either run out of, you know, stockable terrain or you just, you know, you wait for them to get to a spot where you can stock and then a deer ends up picking you out or whatever. But being able to close that last distance with a decoy, I think would have, would have likely been a game changer because, you know, like they're, they're used to seeing deer out there, obviously, you know, like they're grouped up and, you know, if, if they're not perceiving that as a threat and you can close that extra 50 yards, I think that really could have been a game changer for us. Well, I think the first, it would have been the first stock we went on. You, you know, we split up that first morning and you, you located that buck uh, we got back together and we went all the way across the ravine and, and found that buck. He was with a couple does. Um, and I think in the video you sent me, 
you have the video of that buck. He's up above that doe. And, and I think you, you or I either say, he's like, he only cares about one thing and it is that doe. And he charges down at her because he doesn't like where she's at. He wants her to move or whatever. And she doesn't really know what to do. Um, and we were at a hundred yards, probably right there for sure. Within 150, if I remember correctly. And we kind of ran out of real estate. I mean, we were standing behind a tree, like, what do we do now? Where are they going to go? That buck was aggressive. He he wasn't happy with the situation he was in with this doe or what she was doing. And if we would have had a decoy there, I do believe you could have, you probably could have gotten out or at least an, an opportunity there where he maybe would have closed some distance because he was definitely aggressive enough to do it. Yeah, that buck was caring about nothing but that doe, and I think if a, a decoy, if we would have decoyed, he definitely would have tolerated that. He was in that right mindset, and you do have to kind of read the deer when you're bringing that decoy out too. Like if they're moving fast, they're not really interested in anything. Like maybe that's not the right situation to bring a decoy out. But that one where he's like, he's fired up. He's like, I want my doe and I want everyone else to get away from me. Like, I, I think that buck definitely would have been, would have been decoyable. And, you know, like when we first found him, he was actually with a smaller buck and he chased that other buck right off. So that's gotta be like a telltale sign right there. You know, he, he wants to just be with this doe. So if <laughs> he's not going to just run away from this decoy, he's probably going to rough up his fur and get a little angry and, and you're likely going to be able to close that distance. Yeah. As long as I think, as long as you can hide yourself when you're depending upon the decoy you have or the situation, uh, just make sure you hide yourself and he can only see the decoy. Um, yeah, there's, there's a good chance he maybe would have, would have bought it and, uh, and, and got within bow range, but definitely something we're, uh, we're going to play with in the future. Yeah, for sure. That, uh, that hunt was just full of learning experiences. You know, we didn't end up tagging anything, bringing it, bringing, uh, bringing anything home. Well, I guess, I guess we did. We can talk about that. We actually, uh, we found a pretty cool find at the end there. You want to, you want to touch on what happened there? Yeah, we were basically walking back to the, to the pickup. We, we were, we had our hunt time, our hunt time was over and, uh, we were just basically a couple ridges uh, between us and the pickup. And I come over a ridge top. We were just talking about, okay, you know, let's go slow and glass into this. And, and if anybody's ever glassed a, a dead deer, a rib cage just seems to stick out uh, like a sore thumb. So it, we were at a, enough of an angle down where I could see into the thick brush. And sure enough, there's, there's a rib cage, you know, uh, white and could see bones and then started looking a little bit closer. And of course there's, there's antlers there too, or there's, there's a rack there. So, um, I called you over and we went down and, and, uh, identified it. And then, you know, we started talking about it. Well, it's like, well, um, I don't know what we, we can't really do anything because you I mean, we can't, can't bring it home, uh, without permission. So, uh, we just so happened to be in an area that, that, uh, I could get cell phone signal without too far of a hike. So got to the top of the ridge and, and, uh, uh, got a, got a hold of a local game warden and gave us, gave us permission to, to take that home with us. So yeah, we got to, got to meet him, uh, back in, in Dickinson and gave us a possession tag and everything. So, but it was a cool find. It's the biggest, that's the largest mule deer deadhead I've ever found. I mean, we've found sheds and stuff like that, but I uh, never found a deadhead like that. And, and, uh, so it was, that was pretty unique. So it was fun that we got to be able to bring it home too. 
Yeah, that was very cool. And that's definitely the biggest deadhead that I've ever found. It was like literally our exact target buck, you know, like 150 to 160 great forks. It's got eye guards. It's like, that's all, oh, that's the deer that we were after. But unfortunately, uh, you know, mother nature took care of it first. Like, I, I don't know if, if, if it was like early in the season or it was, it was likely last season because, you know, like everything was picked perfectly clean and, and he was in an area that was real shaded and it looked like, you know, he'd kind of been there for a while, but it's kind of just makes you wonder like what exactly happened to this deer, but it was a, it was a super cool find anyways. And, uh, you know, like we, I, I filmed this whole experience doing the editing right now, putting it into a, putting it into a YouTube clip. So like, you'll be able to see all these deer that we were talking about that, you know, like our, our blown stocks, our deer, we couldn't get in front of this dead head. There's like, there's, there's video stuff to go through with this. So like, uh, I'm not sure if it's going to be edited before this podcast comes out, but like once it does get edited, we'll put it into the description of this podcast. And it's, it's definitely a cool watch. It's, it's worth checking out for sure. Yep. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then just, you, you know, like every state is different, but like North Dakota, you can't, you can't touch a deadhead unless you like contact the game and fish. So like we went through the right protocols. We, we called the game and fish officer. We took some photos of it and, and sent it to him before touching it. And you know, the game and fish guy is like, yeah, that's been there quite a while. You're not going to need a carcass tag on that one. Cause it's literally just the head in a rib cage. So it was really cool of, uh, of that game and fish officer to be willing to, you know, meet us on a Sunday and, and, uh, you know, take a look at it and write up that possession tag. So, you know, didn't, didn't fill our bow tags, but, you know, came home with some bone anyways. Yeah. Yep. I'm going to clean that skull up and, and, uh, find a unique way to at least display it, uh, display it or whatever, uh, at home. So it was pretty cool find. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just a, it's just a great keepsake to have as, uh, you know, maybe it's part of a pedestal mount where you've got a, you got a mountain lion and that dead head on the bottom or something. It's just, it's a real, it's going to be a great story to tell. I'll, uh, here, well, next year, let's kill a buck in that drainage. And then that buck can be a part of the, uh, the, the pedestal mount. How about that? Let's, oh, let's try, yeah. try to do that. That'll be perfect. I mean, those, those two real good bucks we were chasing were, were not very far away from where we found that one. So there's a, there's a pretty decent chance we can make that happen. We just got to shoot straight, right? That's right. <laughs> Very That's right. cool. So, all right. Well, thank you for, uh, for speaking with me today. Thank you for going on that hunt and, you know, sharing those memories and all those learning experiences. So hopefully, uh, hopefully the listeners out there can kind of catch some, catch some tidbits and maybe inspire people to, to give that December hunting a try. Cause it's, uh, you know, it's super challenging. If you think you're real good, like go out in December, it's, it, it can be a very humbling experience, but at the same time, it can be, it can be so, so fun. We got on so many deer, had a lot of stock opportunities. And, you know, the, the one thing about it too, is like, there was no one out there. I mean, we hunted for three days and the only people that we saw was one muzzleloader hunter, but the rest was like we had thousands and thousands of acres to ourselves. You know, like the, one of the most frustrating things about early season is like you have to get way off the grid to get away from a lot of people. But, you know, we had we had spots where like we drove a truck and we went over one ridge and it was it was just us. Yeah, 
it's it's always nice to have the deer to yourself granted it's public land and 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 that's a part of it's just a part of the equation when there's other people out there you can't can't blame them they're doing exactly the same thing that uh, that we're trying to do but uh it definitely was nice to to kind of have that whole whole block or the whole area to ourselves and I guess we were the only ones harassing the deer, so we can't blame anybody else. <laughs> yeah, no one to blame but ourselves. There was there was nobody to blame but ourselves. So I guess that's that's all right though. It was fun. Yep, love it. So all right. Thank you again for joining uh joining us today and you know, best of luck with uh with the rest of your season. Yep. Thank you for having me. You just heard our conversation with Ryan Fisher on late season mule deer hunting strategies and tactics. Hopefully this segment inspires some of you to, you know, if you still have one of those tags left in your pocket, get out there, give it a shot. It's a ton of fun. Um, Also be thinking about next year, you know, if you need to build points or apply, make sure you got that in the back of your mind so you're ready to give this a try. If you need anything for gear, you know, head to your local Shields or visit us online at shields.com. We have everything to get yourself ready for any situation that may arise in the field. And with that, we want to thank you all for listening and see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Shields Outdoors podcast. Stay tuned for future segments and visit our social media pages, Shields Outdoors on Facebook and Instagram for daily updates.